You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Welcome and good evening to everyone or morning and afternoon uh, for some of you. My name is Saydarim Hussain and I am the leadership lead at Afresist, which is a multimedia platform that uses technology for the co-creation of alternative models of training, convening and empowering African youth. As we have seen and continue to see, the COVID-19 pandemic has disrupted lives and communities across the world. But this has particularly highlighted the potential benefit of digital technologies but it has also exposed the challenges in relation to equitable access to technology and equitable opportunities for young people to advance their learning and skills for life and work. So in an increasingly um, interconnected, interconnected world ahead and connected world ahead, today's discussion will explore what is needed for youth to be better prepared for this world, and in particular, in terms of the African context. This includes not just the skills needed to prepare young people for evolving work demands, but more importantly, skills to empower young people in their own lives, their communities, and as young leaders of today. Today, ODI has convened young leaders, as well as experts from government, research, and sector stakeholders to discuss three key issues. The first is the need for more equitable access for young people to tech, to advance the opportunities of learning of soft skills, leadership and work. The second is strengthening young people's preparedness for and navigation through life and work, but in the ever evolving digital and work world ahead and how learning and education systems and employers can continue to adapt accordingly. And three, a call for innovative collaborations and partnerships among stakeholders needed to support young people in these areas and including young voices in these key conversations. To lead today's discussions, I welcome our panelists who will be able to contribute various perspectives and expertise. Here with us is Jabulu Batha, a young entrepreneur from Volcross, South Africa. Jabulu, um, welcome. Um, we also welcome Deborah Saki, a young leader from Ghana who is passionate about learning and education. Welcome, Deborah. We also have the, the pleasure and honor to have here with us Dr. Kevit Desai, Dr. Kevit Desai is the Principal Secretary of the Kenya State Department for the East African Community. Welcome, Dr. Desai. And joining us from ODI is Melanie Pinay, Research Fellow in the Digital Societies Program at ODI. Welcome, Melanie. I ha I'm happy to share that um, we're expecting over 200 people to join us today across 20 countries, which provides for a truly global conversation. And to join the conversation on Twitter, Please uh, use the hashtag, um, hashtag FutureReadyYouth um, to join us in this very important conversation. Before we begin hearing from the speakers, I would like to first invite Trisha Williams to share a few opening remarks. Trisha is thematic research lead at the MasterCard Foundation, and in this role, she is responsible for building the evidence base to contribute to the foundation strategy, addressing the youth employment challenge in Africa. She was lead author of the Foundation's Invisible Lives Study and recently oversaw pivotal research on scenarios for employment in digital commerce. Trisha. Thank you so much. It's a, a delight to be here with you, with you today. Um, so as you said, I'm Trisha Williams with the research team at the MasterCard Foundation. 
And the MasterCard Foundation is an independent global foundation working to create a world where everyone has the opportunity to learn and prosper. We're currently working in seven countries across Africa and with indigenous communities in Canada. And we're focused on a, a singular challenge, the challenge of uh, youth, work, and livelihoods. Our goal is to enable opportunities for 30 million youth across Africa by 2030 to have dignified and fulfilling work. So several years ago, we embarked on a new program to support the creation of multi-stakeholder partnerships in Ghana and Uganda. And this was called Youth Forward, and it was laser focused on young people, ensuring that they were at the center of our efforts, as well as surfacing and addressing systemic barriers through the various partners. So I want to first of all thank all the people who took part in the Youth Forward initiative over the past years, including dozens of partner organizations, I believe there's more than 50, across Ghana and Uganda, as well as ODI, the Digital Societies team, and other partners, uh, PDA in Ghana and DRT in Uganda, who led the learning partnership. And most of all, we want to thank the young people who led and participated in the program. So they've constantly uh, been gracious to teach us and show us how they will be the change agents of the future. So more recently, the MasterCard Foundation embarked upon a COVID-19 recovery and resilience program, where we focused on critical challenges related to e-learning, digitalization, and support for small and medium enterprises in the COVID crisis. Uh, these are issues that we see as particularly salient in this COVID era, and we're thinking about how do we move from that recovery into resilience building in our, in our future programming as well. One of the things we really take away is that digital engagement has never been more needed or posed such a tremendous opportunity for the future. So we also highlighted digital skills and digital readiness in a recent publication we released on secondary education in Africa, which calls for renewed investment in secondary systems across Africa. And this was a multi-year research effort involving consultations and dialogue with everyone from ministers of education to secondary students themselves. And we really called out a timely and critical opportunity to double down on secondary secondary education. And we see digital skills and investments as critical to this effort. So let me pause there. I won't take up all the time. I really want to hear from the panelists today and just to echo again our, our delight and, and validate the importance of having this conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tricia. Um, so after our panel speakers uh, share their round of insights, we will have a round of questions and answers. So to all the audience members tuned in, please feel free to share questions through the chat, bo the chat box function on this page uh, throughout today's uh, discussions and today's session. Um, so now let me turn to our first speaker, Jabulu Bata. During the lockdown, Jabulu used his Wi-Fi router as a basis for his business, the NetSpot Internet Hub selling time on the router to community members so they can access the internet. Jabulo is former participant of the Harambe Project, a social, a social enterprise tackling unemployment in South Africa. Welcome Jabulo, please tell us more about your experience. Thank you and hello everybody. Um, Chairperson, the panelist, government stakeholders and everyone, Dr. Dise, um, and everyone here today. How can I forget Aaron and Ariana? My name is Njabulo Mbata, 28 years of age. I live in South Africa, Bumalanga province from a very, very, very small township called Falkrust. I grew up there. I live there. 
knowing and believing that, you know, there's more that I can do um, to um, improve, firstly, my digital skills and my society at large. Well, unfortunately, because of the insufficient resources and lack of knowledge and some capability, I, you know, couldn't be more effectively effective as I should be. Until I came across Harambe opportunity, um, which was specifically the entrepreneurial program or training, which took me more than 10 weeks in one year. So my life was dramatically changed afterwards by the syllabus Harambe and Sasol had brought to us. So they um, taught me how to draft, for example, they taught me how to draft a business plan. I never knew what a business plan is, where to start drafting, like the template of a business plan. So it was a standout for me that, um, you know, I learned how to, now I can draft a business plan, the marketing strategy, um, the community survey. As, as a young entrepreneur, I didn't know that before you can um, commit yourself into a business or before you can even start a business, you need to do a survey, especially to a place where you particularly live in. And, um, you know, and to how to present your business, how, how to present your business. And most importantly, they helped me to register my business, which was um, something that was stand out for me. I didn't even um, have an idea because of the town that I was living in. I never thought um, it is that important to register your business to be legit in South Africa. Um, and then after 10 weeks, um, now I had to start my business. January 2020, this year, uh, was more practical than ever before. Now, what I always wanted to do was to have my mini internet cafe in my garage finally has to start, um, you know, properly in a correct way, registered and informative enough. February was okay to me. Here comes March 2020. After the country's lockdown due to the global pandemic, um, which was and is still COVID-19, so my business made double of the previous month's profit because during my survey, I knew well that I had um, only one competitor, which was totally closed at that particular time. So people came flooding at home, begging me to type this and submit their assignments. It was, it was, it was a standout for me. And, um, you know, other thing that um, some of the customers needed to connect, I, I, I didn't, you know, from the, from the beginning, I started the business um, because of love and because of um, eager to know what more could the internet bring to me. But now when most customers and more customers came into, um, you know, my house begging um, to connect and I used my router, my little tiny router, uh, selling time to my customers. And then um, it was amazing. I myself didn't believe it. But it was amazing. And um, that is when my community started to recognize me. That is where they started to rely on me. That is where they started to believe in me. So what I would um, say to young stars of tomorrow, the youth, they should believe in themselves. They should literally believe in themselves and whatever dreams they may have, tiny as they can be, in their heads, it can become a reality only if they dream less and act more 
which basically means that um, whatever that you have in mind, whatever that whatever the idea may be, you have to start small, start implementing what can be done, start using the resources that you currently have, start using the resources that you have handy at that particular moment. You will go places. So Harambe just brought me, um, it, it was a light for me from Sasso. It was a light for me and I will never forget that. Um, so I, I, that is um, what I would like to share with you, Chairperson. Uh, thank you very much, Jibulu. I mean, that's that's a really inspiring um, story. I think for me, a follow-up question would be, so you talk, you know, a lot about how now the Harambe project was very central to you in, you know, not only that awareness, but exposing you to, you know, how to write a business plan, also how to register and registration for especially like young entrepreneurs is, I think, one of the biggest challenges that we, that we have. Um, so I'd like to ask you, how do you and young people you know, you know, have maybe you know, who've been through sort of the same journey. How do you, how do they see government and tech companies, uh, but also, you know, other sort of stakeholders um, working more closely with youth to facilitate more actual access to programs or even just tech to help them, you know, through these like, entre through the process of entrepreneurship? I think they're doing everything they can in their powers to help us to achieve our goals. Let me just make an example of myself. If I didn't get this particular opportunity to get knowledge on how to draft a business plan, to get knowledge on how to do the marketing, the, the, marketing, the, the marketing of your business, on how to um, manage time, those kind of programs, the government that is bringing to us, it, it, it's, it's really helping everyone, not just me, but a lot of people, if they can just um, pay attention to what the government is bringing to us and value that, take that seriously. Most of the young people, they don't mind that. They don't take serious of these little opportunities. They're not little actually, they are huge because look at where I am today because of um, something that I took serious and acted um, and positively when I find this platform. So um, yeah, they are doing everything they can. They're bringing the, the um, trainings to us. They're bringing um, the resources to us to actually have access um, and and to have more knowledge on the business um, field. Thank you, thank you very much. Um, uh, so I'd like to turn to uh, Deborah uh, Deborah Saki uh, to speak. And Deborah is uh, the co-lead for education at the World Economic Forum's Global Shapers Community in Accra, and is also co-founder of the digital book marketplace Onyocha, and has organized and supported several reading club initiatives for youth and community members members. Welcome, Deborah. Um, I'm really looking forward to hearing um, your experience. Thank you so much, Saida, and I'm really glad to be here, and I'm really glad to share my experiences and insights with everyone here today. I'll be speaking from the point of view of education and the startup industry here in Ghana. And I think that um, looking at the increasingly digital world we are going into, and especially preparing young people the digital world, there are some changes that we need to put into place, starting with education, the kind of education that young people in Ghana and in Africa have access to. From Even from the point of view of digital skills education, we see a great divide um, in the public school system and the private school system here in Ghana. I went to a private school for my basic education, but then I transitioned 
to a public school for my high school education. And this is a very common trend among young people here in Ghana. So I did realize that my IT education ended at the private school, when I was in the private school at the basic school level, because the government and public schools do not have the funding or the resources to um, keep up the IT education that was going on. So I do remember that in my high school, we had a computer lab, but students were not allowed to access it. It was kept locked at all times because I guess them, they felt as if we would ruin the computers, we would destroy them. So we never used them and we never had access to that. So this sort of, um, this culture, especially in the public and government schools here, creates a bigger divide between the haves and the haves not. And that is one of the things that we need to look at. I also think that we need to look at um, revamping our curriculums to include um, building of more soft skills in young people. And we are looking at leadership skills, critical thinking skills, confidence and teamwork. From my personal experience, I found um, a lot of my education to be very rote, to be just the learning of a lot of facts, learn what the teacher is saying, you go to the exam room and then you write exactly what it is that you were taught. It was after I was done with the university when I joined the Global Shippers Community. So this is a young um, organization of young people in cities around the world who want to create change in their communities. And I was exposed to different people. I, was, I learned to work with many people. I was given the opportunity to carry out my own initiatives. I was supported to carry out my own initiatives. This is where I started the Step Up Literacy Projects. That was an initiative to reach out to basic school children in underserved communities and introduce them to literacy and creativity. So it was in the Global Shippers community that I had the chance to do all of this and to develop parts of myself that were sorely underdeveloped. I also found out that um, going through the public high school system that I went through, I had to, I didn't have the opportunity to explore all parts of my curiosities. Once at the age of 14, that's the age that many people in Ghana get to high school, you have to decide what track of education you want to go through. So are you going to be studying only science subjects? Are you going to be studying only visual arts subjects, only home economic subjects? You, you, you pick a particular track and then you stay within that track till you're done. And then that sort of influences what kind of courses you will take in the university or the career you go to. So this um, track system that we have, it sort of prevents young people from exploring various parts of their creativity. And it also prevents us from being very fluid and being adaptable in as we go and as we are getting ready to, to take on jobs, especially in the digital field. In the startup, Another thing that we need to look at revamping is creating a more, um, fostering a very creative and entrepreneurial industry here in Ghana. When I started my digital book marketplace on Neutral Limited, I did receive some help from incubators that were funded in part by the government of Ghana. These incubators gave me access to funding for market validation. They also gave me access to coaching, to mentorship. A lot of these today have strengthened the process the um, operations process of the digital book marketplace. And this, I would, we wouldn't have gotten that far if not because of the support that I had when I started out. And so this sort of support needs to move from just being concentrated in the big cities like Accra or Kumasi, moving from urban areas to rural areas so that every person, no matter their background or socioeconomic standing, can get access to 
support because young people across Ghana, across Africa have lots of brilliant ideas. We've shown that we have the energy and the talent to solve our own problems and we just need the relevant support that's going to prepare us to be ready for our digital world. Thank you. Thank you, Deborah. Um, so you speak about, and I think like this is a question that I wanted to ask you, um, was that there needs to be more support. So I'm just wondering, um, what other ways can can youth initiatives or young people who, with initiatives like yourself and you know uh, and like Jabulo uh, businesses like Jabulo, in what ways can we as young people with these sort of initiatives work in partnership and collaboration with either you know governments or tech companies or even research institutions to scale up these initiatives to give more young people um, access to these sort of programs and you know so like you rightly said uh, there is that pub public private school um, inequality and you know then we had like the rural and urban area issues in terms of access to opportunities and then you have refugees as well um who don't have access to some of this tech and these educational opportunities so just wondering like apart from um you know support so support in what sort of ways um can this collaboration scale up these, pro these programs thank you very much for the question i think that um the the government and these organizations that are providing the support have to go to the people. They have to decentralize the sort of help that is coming our way. There are lots of grassroots organizations um, that are coming up in these communities. There are lots of young people who are forming their own clubs, whether these are book clubs, whether these are IT clubs. So what needs to happen is that these government agencies and other organizations need to be able to identify and reach out to these grassroots organizations because they are in contact with the local people. They know the needs of the local people. They know what is already going on, and then they can show these government organizations what kind of what further help is needed, what more help is needed, and where they can put in the funding, where they can put in the coaching, and the, especially the particular needs of the communities involved. Thank you. Thank you, Deborah. And I think that's a nice um, transition uh, to welcome Dr. Uh, to welcome again, Dr. Uh, Kevin Desai to the conversation. Um, and Dr. Kevin Decide uh, was, uh, prior to his role as Principal Secretary of the Kenyan State Department for the East African Community, was Principal Secretary of Vocational and Technical Training in the Kenya Ministry of Education. He championed technical and vocational education and training in the private sector, government and development partners linkages towards transforming Kenya's technical and vocational training platform. He is also chairperson of the Young Scientists Kenya. Welcome, Dr. Desai, and we know you have a wealth of experience uh, in education and in the public sector. What uh, key insights could you share with us today? Thank you, Saga. Indeed, very inspired to be here with you today and um, listening to the um, information that's been provided by both uh, Deborah and uh, Jabulo. I was quite uh, impressed by the word he used, you know, Harambe. Harambe means, is a Swahili word from Kenya and uh, means coming together, joining forces. And indeed, that this is what's required, you know, in today's time, while it's extremely difficult with respect to COVID-19 and the challenges we face with this monumental pandemic. On the other hand, you know, there's an incredible opportunity to address those very values to ensure that uh, 
we make progress with respect to the ability to promote this life work link and nexus between our youth and those values you know as you mentioned promote the ability to find ways in which we find access as well as uh, equity to skills development but also the promotion of innovation and uh, the promotion of relevance of uh, skills and education within Kenya's context of course uh, within the East African context we see that there are challenges challenges with respect to limited access of information and communication technologies as well as the challenge of course compounded in rural areas with respect to this access and equity and the issues with respect to technical and soft skills too to utilize applications these um, challenges are further amplified by the fact that there are uh, issues with respect to language barriers they almost um, some 40 plus tribes in Kenya so you can imagine what is required in order to promote access and equity to education as well as aspects of information overload there's a challenge with respect to cybersecurity and uh, the risks pertaining to cybersecurity and crime and the ability for us to ensure that we're able to control these environments effectively we can all play a huge role in all of this and uh, this is what government policy is all about and trying to find ways in which we're able to create a platform an ecosystem to promote a wide range of ICT based programs in local languages to take advantage of um, community knowledge inherent in various communities and their unique uh, lifestyles and uh, their skills which have been developed over decades and centuries there's also also the challenge with respect to how to deal with um, and uh, promote greater technology which is environmentally friendly aspects of labor management information systems as well as the promotion of um, creativity and um, resourcefulness and curiosity within these applications the um, accessibility to affordable bundles you know the, the cost of um, internet and technology as well as the improved bandwidth and connectivity throughout uh, our region these are challenges of course and um, indeed policy reform and work and uh, collaborative links between the private sector development partner and uh, academia need to resolve this increasingly the uh, potential of course within the region is uh, enormous the highest number of youth in the world the uh, dividends with respect to a demographic dividend by way of our youth their incredible capacities of being curious creative and um, resourceful these could be easily aligned to solutions social economic and environmental and the promotion of young people and their exposure as well as um, their comparative advantage with respect to the older population them being more dynamic being more uh, in touch with some of the challenges that we face the intergenerational 
power dynamics between young people and older people, youth have the potential of becoming hubs of knowledge and uh, thereby building capacity from the continent. The opportunities of adaptability, technology comes very easily to youth and um, their ability to fully utilize it to their uh, capacities. The issue with respect to soft skills as leaders, the uh, internet has uh, phenomen phenomenal potential, not only with respect to simulation and uh, exposure, but also the ability to access educational material research and ensure that all is up to date. And this makes a profound difference, you know, in, in young people, their education and their educational paths. The very important role with respect to equity and um, involvement is absolutely central in this. And that nexus between the private sector, the world of work and youth can be established using capacities with respect to ensuring that standards are harmonized throughout regions, thereby promoting mobility, as well as uh, ensuring that we're able to build that environment where standards are developed, implemented, and are accessible by youth. Affirmative action programs, as well as uh, mainstreaming youth in issues of national development and national leadership, mentorship programs, incubation centers, and innovation and creativity centers that see their ideas being implemented and tested in, in the world, and youth-friendly service points uh, promote the promotion of access. All of this is central. Of course, uh, very critical is the ability to create this multifaceted environment which promotes multiple involvement in standards, and there, from there, the ability to ensure that that nexus is created towards the world of work and uh, the opportunities that youth have within that life-work experience. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Desai. Um, so just as a follow-up question, it is interesting to me that um, the educational system as, you know, one of the main stakeholders of the educational system are the youth. Um, and, you know, so 18 to, in Africa, 18 to 35 years old. So this is ranging from secondary school to, you know, higher education institutions, which also include vocational and technical training um, institutions. How can stakeholders and decision makers continue to, or start, begin to ensure that in these conversations of curriculum development, how to prepare youth with soft skills, for example, that youth voices are there are very much part of those conversations in developing strategies and programs and curricula towards that end. And, and so like also like you said, you know, like youth, not only urban youth or um, like Deborah had mentioned, youth who are privileged, this would be, you know, youth, rural youth and also uh, in particular refugee youth. I think that this is indeed is the crux of the issue in, with respect to how do we transition into a fully inclusive system that promotes those values that you talk about with respect to access, equity, innovation and relevance. And indeed, you know, this, it couldn't be a better time because of uh, the internet, you know, the ability to quickly get online 
And, and this is central and uh, essential in promoting that interactiveness and openness that needs to be used in a way in which uh, you're able to design the standards of competency-based education, for example, and then the implementation parts, as well as, like you said, the, develop, the development of curriculum to achieve those standards, and finally that assessment procedure. In all of this, the ability for standards to prevail is absolutely essential to create the necessary trust and um, the capacities to ensure that young people's curiosity, creativity and resourcefulness are not wasted. And it's absolutely critical that in this process, standards and capacities are availed in order to find further innovations to achieve that standard. You don't necessarily have to have a fixed curriculum, but as long as you achieve the standards of education, the outcomes, then there's greater flexibility in no matter what language you live in or environment or opportunity. And I think that this is what we need to do to harmonize, to join forces, to promote that Harambe spirit, to work together, to find ways in which we're able to lift this uh, master and uh, ensure that it prevails you know, throughout uh, the fabrics of nations. It's essential because, uh, yes, of course, um, communities are full of resources and enrichment. But then again, you know, the whole world is an opportunity and therefore that right for young people to be mobile is absolutely essential and uh, non-negotiable. Thank you, Dr. Desai, for sharing your insights. Um, I'd like to now welcome uh, Melanie Pinay. Uh, whose background is in monitoring and evaluation and policy analysis in complex contexts and conflict-affected countries. She manages the learning partnership with the MasterCard Foundation's Youth Forward Initiative. This webinar today continues the conversation that started in July with the consultation around youth and digital technologies in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, can you tell us a bit more, Melanie, about the emerging, about the emerging lessons from the COVID-19 crisis for youth programs? Thank you so much, Saida. It's a real pleasure to hear the other panelists contributing today. So first, I'd like to remind that the impact of COVID-19 on young people's lives and livelihoods is tremendous and from access to education to employment, but also And the acceleration of use of digital technologies and including social media has made um, a single smartphone now Wi-Fi is largely of people, large share of people is really important. Um, I think we've lost Melanie for a second. I'm one of the challenges of uh, online webinars, even though they, they somehow bring more access to people, uh, these are the, the logistical problems that, that come with them. Uh, so we're just going to try and get uh, Melanie back. Um, so I, oh, yep, I think she's coming, there she is. Hi, Melanie, welcome back. Oh, I think I disappeared for a second. Can you hear me right now? Is that any better? Yeah, that's better. Wonderful, thank you. 
Um, and so despite um, accessibility challenges um, in terms of digital technologies, youth have been a positive force in their communities and mobilized through technologies and offline actions such as uh, Deborah, Jabulo and Saida. And others have been supporting their communities using tech by fighting against injustice. A recent example of that is the hashtag NSOS launched by a decentralized youth-led movement against police brutality in Nigeria. And in this instance, youth have tapped into digital tools such as social media for advocacy purposes and organizing offline actions with about 150 million tweets using the hashtag by late October. But not only. For the fundraising efforts, Families Coalition opened its donation channels to Bitcoins, um, who accounted for more than a third of total donations. But to get back to um, the global consultation, which we held back in July, um, we were looking at investigating the intersection between use and digital technologies in Sub-Saharan Africa. And then we gathered about 130 participants from almost 40 countries, primarily in Sub-Saharan Africa. And there was a large consensus among participants that for youth to be meaningfully involved in African digital transformation, there was an urgent need to develop a digital ecosystem involving education and basic education skills, policy informed and infrastructure. And the topic of this seminar on digital skills new for the future, um, we need to remind that digital skills can mean a lot of different things uh, and they can range from developing an app that is probably not in every young person's reach to using social media platforms to market or sell one's products. But now the question is, where, where are young people at in the digital skills ladder and how are they acquiring those skills and, and what skills might they need? But also, it shouldn't only be about digital skills, but about the skills needed for a digital world and the skills not only um, to be ready for work, but to become active citizens uh, in this new normal. And some of them have been mentioned earlier um, by um, co-panelists, um, such as problem solving and creativity, uh, adaptability, confidence, and teamwork, um, or also leadership and advocacy, um, storytelling to, to tackle social issues in young people's community. Um, other include data literacy and data fluency to avoid misleading statistics and to be able to make sense of the data in media. Um, I think someone also mentioned media literacy and critical thinking but also understanding digital identity to address fraud as internet consumers are increasingly interacting with businesses and government services online. But other life skills and soft skills are important too, such as personal hygiene, sexual and reproductive health, legal rights, the notion of gender and social norms, and financial literacy. Another question we asked participants was about the barriers to building digital and, and what was preventing the gap closure in the digital divide? How can we go about it? And, and four areas um, globally came out. So the first one was that young people want a political will and commitment to investments to make the tools available for them to be equipped with digital skills from primary through to secondary um, to respond to dynamic demand, but also from employers uh, was on the job. And second, there is also a need for innovative partnerships, which we mentioned earlier, to bring all actors around the table to collaborate on initiatives to equip young people with the skills needed in the job market, but with youth at the center of this conversation. And third, um, ensuring inclusion and accessibility based on the format and the content and, and the language of this learning 
um, using alternative systems such as mixed mass media like TV and radio and print and press, but also mobile phones like WhatsApp and, and transcribing content to video and, and photo so that all audiences can have access to this content. And teachers need urgent retraining and, and they need to adapt uh, this face-to-face form of face-to-face interactions to digital means today. And finally, thinking about the unintended consequences of technology. We all well know that technology is not neutral. So the power and the purpose of technology needs to be challenged. Um, tech needs to have greater inputs from individuals from diverse backgrounds to address implicit and explicit bias in data. And for example, um, regional hubs for tech could be created outside of the Silicon Valley to design technology by Africans for Africans in local languages but also to develop hardware and software that are not exclusively restricted to Apple or Android devices, and finally using indigenous knowledge systems. And one last point to wrap this up. When thinking about digital transformation, it is important to deliberate um, about the skills and the expertise and the competencies needed for the future work that we're doing today. But it is also crucial um, to put values um, and ideals of a global societies in which young people are aspiring to at the center of the conversation. And this can include, for example, um, the SDGs and people-centered investments, not only um, business consideration and gender equality and solidarity towards marginalized individuals uh, and minorities, as well as those from different socioeconomic backgrounds. And finally, which was mentioned earlier, the environment, the, the young people we inherit from, so very much encouraging sustainable investments. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Melanie. Um, so, I mean, the question that 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 I want to ask you, I think, is um, you know, a question that I've been trying, to, I've been sitting with um, a lot um, with Afrosist, um as a leadership uh, program. How do we, and how can now, how do governments and educational stakeholders work towards, yes more uh, digitalization in terms of education and learning but how how do you do that um and introduce soft skills um within a digital sort of space uh for young people and in your experience with like edtech um do we lose something being online and trying to um prepare young people with soft skills I think it should be a combination of both and um, something that's quite important and uh, I think that's been mentioned before was to also involve you know all the different stakeholders uh, around that table, primarily youths which are the main stakeholders who are actually going to be benefiting and receive these different policies and programs um, and, and I suppose one thing that you know we should capitalize on at the moment um, given COVID and, and the increase of um, use and acceleration of digital technologies is, is to leverage government use strategies. So a lot of governments have these strategies, uh, but they're not necessarily, you know, budgeted for, or there isn't quite so much um, metrics to measure um, how things are going. Um, and, and for those who have these ministries, for example, they uh, don't always have the power to uh, connect or collaborate with other ministries uh, within the government. So I think, uh, putting that back, back into the agenda and, and using um, the different use strategies and putting use at the center should be your priorities. And 
in terms of online and offline, I think I think the different soft skills um, will help both online and offline actions. But it can't be one of the others. I think they have to be very much integrated one with the others. Thank you, Melanie. Um, so I'd like to, you know, before we open the question and answer session, um, I'd like to invite the audience to take part in a poll. Um, and we'd like to know from our audience um, their thoughts on the following question, which is what skills should be prioritized for youth to be better prepared for life and work in the next decade? So the question is, what skills should be prioritized for youth to be better prepared for life and work in the next decade? And you should be able to see um, the poll to be able to vote um, in the chat room. Okay. Um, so as people vote, uh, we'll start taking questions from the audience. So please share your questions in the chat room uh, below the webinar screen. And I know some of you have already been sharing some great questions and we encourage you to continue sharing questions throughout the chat room function. And, we, and in advance, uh, we apologize if uh, we don't have enough time to answer all of the questions. Uh, so let's start sharing questions and let's vote. Okay, so uh, we're getting questions coming in now. Uh, so thank you to all uh, the audience and the speakers uh, for sharing um, your collective questions and insights. Uh, so, uh, so the question is, um, and this um, question is to you know any of the panelists, um, what is the most important thing that the governments or other agents could be doing to ensure we are including youth in conversations moving forward and what would be the most what would be most effective uh, so maybe i could throw this question uh, to dr desai uh, what is the most important thing that governments or other agents could be doing to ensure we are including youth in conversations moving forward thank you thank you in, indeed the ability to create that interactive ecosystem between the youth by way of in the mainstream of opportunities with respect to uh, soft skills as well as uh, core skills that are required and I, and I believe that the ability for them to be involved in the entire value chain of education you know, from setting the actual standards the measurement of what needs to be learned and all the way through to the mentorship programs and opportunities that they have for simulation exercises. Now, of course, there's a challenge here that we face as um, governments. Indeed, we're too heavily involved in investing in the current systems. And that transition to innovation, that transition to transformation is always a challenge. And this is why collective capacities need to be brought together in order to create that new ecosystem that we're able to transition our existing policy structures and so on into implementation. Most governments realize, you know, that uh, indeed 
the issue of relevance, quality, access and equity are central to their policy development, their legislation, their ability to strategize and so on. But that transition is always a challenge, and I think that it requires multiple stakeholders. It cannot be just done by government alone. That is why the youth uh, can play a role in this in promoting that uh, leadership, that ability to champion and uh, promote that capacity for stakeholders to understand that they need to invest in education and skills and find ways in which we're able to ensure that ICT is fully integrated at all levels of uh, educational development. Thank you, Dr. Desai. Um, I'd like to hear from uh, uh, Deborah and Jabulo. Um, how have you done this? How have you tried to push that barrier and to ensure that you and other youth are included in some of these conversations moving forward? Um, Saida, you go first. <laughs> Ladies first. Uh, Deborah, maybe, yeah. Yeah, you mean Deborah? Deborah. Right. So I, th I think, yeah, yeah. I think that um, young people are on their own taking some initiatives that um, some initiatives that fit into the needs of their community, and then these initiatives tend to draw attention of government bodies or NGOs towards the work that they are doing. So in and being responsible, seeing as young people seeing themselves as agents of their own development, of their own growth, deciding to take up the responsibility to develop themselves and their communities is one of the ways that we can draw even more attention to ourselves and get even more help that we would need to continue to develop ourselves and our community. So it all begins with seeing ourselves as agents who are capable of doing something, of enacting change. And then from there, we can move to getting support from outside. Um, Definitely, Deborah. Yes, thank you, um, Saida. Definitely, Deborah, you're right. Um, it is basically, um, we, we need to know as young people that education is key and information is power. So the more we have knowledge as young people, the more we get educated, the more we relate our skills, our soft skills, our digital skills with um, you know, field knowledge, then we can, we, can, we can do whatever. There's nothing that can stand in our ways. So I definitely um, agree with Deborah and Dr. Um, Kevet that we need to, um, make sure that we we, 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 we teach um, or we give, how can I put this? But we, we, need, we need to make sure that soft skills are taught and we strengthen our, our digital skills. That will make sure that every, every young person out there, they, they know that they have to be part of the change that needs to happen in the world. Um, and perhaps, uh, Melanie, we could extend the, the, you know, the question to you. From your experience in especially conflict um, areas, how do you think um, you know, governments can, in more practical ways, include young people in these conversations? And, and how can young people in conflict areas um, push some of these barriers and ensure that they are on the table? I think first there is um, a need to also talk about trust um, in between different actors and um, I think COVID has also shown that 
intergenerational um, trust is eroding. So very much bringing these different um, individuals and groups of individuals, young people and other actors, including government actors, um, together on the same table. So it, it's very much about about building and, and strengthening this trust for that, um, so that both sides see the value of communicating and engaging with the others. Um, and so that, that is both valid for conflict-affected countries um, and non-conflict-affected countries. Um, but essentially, I will go back to um, what Kendall um, and Devor that uh, young people young people can only be seen as you know passive and um, not educated and, and waiting. Um, I think that there is a lot of potential and a lot of young people already very active that only need um, a little push um, and a bit more um, infrastructure and help in terms of developing these uh, different skills. So I think we also need to uh, you know, change the narrative around um, young people, which is, I think, changing through um, you know, COVID um, and the different experiences as we've had to rely heavily on, on young people um, to, to go um, about different um, actions being offline or on, online um, during the crisis. Thank you, Melanie. Uh, so Deborah, there's a question um, for you from the chat. Um, so can you share a bit with us on the perspectives of other young people and children you have worked with in your various com community projects? And so it's a two part question. Second part is what challenges have they, what challenges have they observed in equitable access and participation in skills learning and what might be working and what is not working? Yeah, thank you for the question. I'll speak in regards to the last literacy project that we carried out, which was the Step Up Literacy Initiative, where we worked with many young basic school children from um, the third grade to the third grade um, at a community library here in Accra. And one of the things that I noticed was that in order to get the kids to attend these programs, we needed to reach out to their caregivers or their parents. So we have the barrier of parents who some of them may not necessarily see the benefit that their children are going to receive because they themselves have not been educated or they themselves do not understand the value that education is going to bring to their children. So first we realized that we had to work or target their parents, target their caregivers, put in work for them to understand why they had to come. And we had to go beyond that to making sure that we could provide buses that would bring the children from their homes to the libraries because they do not have these these kids or their families did not have the necessary resources to bring themselves so that's a very big gap even if they do realize the importance of education or the importance of being involved in community projects not having the resources is a very big barrier that would prevent them from participating so we also had to make the resource available so that was food that was books that was free transportation so beyond education we we also realized that um there's a big gap in resources and we have to work to make sure that these resources are distributed equitably and equally for all people to get access to the educational initiatives that we put out. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so one follow-up question for Dr. Desai is, um, as we can all observe, there are many public and private partnerships across the region, but from, but from our own, uh, sorry, but from own your many experiences and from your own many experiences and com 
experiences and observations. Could you share any examples of innovative collaborations among government actors and private sector, especially which have worked or are currently working to ensure more equitable access to digital platforms and skills learnings? Yes, indeed, there are many, many different forms uh, and dimensions towards ensuring that we're able to promote that link between uh, various stakeholders, the, the world of work and uh, the youth and the academia. One of the very exciting initiatives that is occurring in the eastern part of Africa is a science movement. It's called Young Scientists Initiative. It's more modelled under and after the the Irish model of the Young Scientist Initiative, and that brings mentorship programs together on a weekly basis in Kenya's context to ensure that professional people, different disciplines of science, whether it's economics or engineering and so on, are able to interact with young people, thereby promoting that necessary mentorship and guidance. It works both ways. Mentees benefit in terms of an experience and inspiration of how young people are uh, approaching issues as well as uh, their interest and their excitement over the field. And and um, indeed, the mentors of ghosts also are able to appreciate the excitement and inspiration of the youth. And so I think that these are good examples. There are examples of how the uh, private sector, the industrial sector works together towards achieving standards as well as um, ensuring that they're able to align to the necessary requirements to promote greater efficiency and productivity in education, but then leading all the way up to assessment where they're involved in verifying education outcomes. And I think these are excellent examples of how greater collaboration takes place. One of the key opportunities here within this context and this time of transformation and need of transformation is to literally think of uh, no boundaries and uh, ensuring that we're able to create that capacity where we're not uh, controlled by boundaries, but to ensure that we, we uh, pay homage as, uh, as nations to one of the greatest natural resources on earth, which are the youth and how we're able to create that ecosystem to ensure that we work on a boundaryless uh, system towards uh, harmonization of standards, as well as uh, curriculum and other kinds of key aspects. Thank you, Dr. Desai. Um... So there's a question from uh, an audience member. Um, how do you think governments and UN organizations can ensure youth skilling initiatives are inclusive for youth with disabilities? Um, so maybe we can start uh, with Melanie, so I'll just repeat the question. Um, how do you think governments and UN organizations can ensure youth sk skilling initiatives are inclusive of youth with disabilities? I think... Um like we, well, we, organizations have tried in the past to, you know, do gender mainstreaming and youth mainstreaming and look at, you know, the different um, 
the different vulnerabilities and uh, ways that young people can be marginalized to include them and to, to ensure that youth inclusion is uh, representative um, to all youth. Um, I think this should be in the continuation of that. So basically looking at the different types of vulnerability and how to address them. So for example, for um, young women um, and some of the programs that we've been leading through the, um, the our partners have been leading through the youth board um, initiative um, in, in male-dominated sectors, for example, it has been really uh, challenging to involve young women to look at the barriers. Why are, not, are they not involved? Or if they are involved, why could you not retain them? So um, I think to actually find these answers, you need to go to these people directly. So you need to go to these young women. In these days, you need to go to young people with disabilities to um, ask them why, you know, is this program not adapted to you um, and how can we make it in a way that is going to through their inclusion into society and uh, make you thrive. Uh, we can't just always assume and make those assumptions. I mean, we can as much as possible in theories of change and uh, basically try to look at the different assumptions and risks. But at the end of the day, um, it's also by asking people what you know, would work for them and how uh, and include them in this conversation to adapt um, based on their needs. So I would very much, again, encourage inclusion um, through asking um, these different stakeholders what is their primary needs. And in the context of this conversation, I think it's also important to uh, put it back to you know, what tech are we using? Is you know, the different um, applications or uh, digital technologies that we're using accessible um, in terms of um, different types of disabilities? And for the moment, they, they are not, uh, for the majority, they're not accessible to um, a, a young person in living in um, a rural area without um, access to the internet, let alone a person with disabilities. So I think it has to be a bit both ways, though. Anticipating and including um, people with disability in the conversation to respond to their needs directly. Uh, thank you, Melanie. Uh, I, I'd, I'd ask the same question, I think, uh, to Dr. Desai. Um, how do you think governments and UN organizations can ensure youth skilling initiatives are inclusive for youth and disability with disabilities? Indeed, uh, the important role of UN organizations and NGOs are really in the category of intermediary organizations and they create that link between the, um, the world of work, the private sector, the educational institutions and the youth. And they have this capacity to promote the necessary transformation and innovation, which is part of the challenge in moving to the new ecosystem promoting rapid transformation based on very dynamic situations, for example, like COVID-19 and you know, what the pandem pandemic has done in terms of uh, promoting greater fragmentation and uh, disunity in various structures and systems. So their role with respect to promoting access, equity, quality and relevance is absolutely critical. Their role in addressing that uh, necessary link to ensure that all areas of education are covered, both for disability and, um, and, and uh, so especially enables youth as well as normal youth. I mean, the, these are absolutely critical 
that um, the role that they play is to ensure that that link, that ability to uh, address that, you know, education isn't necessarily about supply and demand. It's about co-creation, that intermediary link, that intermediary connection can only be achieved through these uh, organizations that are putting their efforts at the frontier of innovation and transformation and have that ability, should they wish to choose to create that uh, link between different institutions, which otherwise operate in certain cases like silos. So very critical role and uh, indeed uh, need to be encouraged and need to be emphasized with respect to their performance and their responsibility to create that collective responsibility in action towards these solutions. Thank you. Uh, so another question uh, from the audience uh, to um, possibly, so let's go uh, Jabula this time and then Deborah. Um, what is the role of the private sector, particularly tech companies, if any, to help boost youth digital skills? So I'll repeat the question. So Jabulo, um, what is the role of the private sector, the private sector, particularly tech companies, to help boost youth digital skills? Well, I think that um, you know the role of the private sector is to um, literally um, uplift. The private sector is there to 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 uplift and to empower um, the, um, the the youth. So the role of it is to actually to 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 make the youth um, more access to 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 the platforms that were that that were not accessible. So yeah, the private sector is um, you know literally there to 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 boost and to uplift youth and to um, you know put them in a place where they could really um, um, think of a ways, think out of the box. To, to to implement to invent new things to change the world to change um, the world so um you know especially um on the digi digital skills we know that um, most of, of of us most of young people in in africa worldwide global they 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 they, they don't have those particular skills the digital skills so i think that um you know uh, the private sector can 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 come in there to to enhance to boost youth to have more access to to such opportunities like digital skills. Thank you very much. And I think that the private sector has the responsibility to give back in any way they can. And this can be whether it's in startups or very large already established technology companies. They have to give back in any way they can. There are instances where in Ghana we have people who are who have advanced in technology coming back to offer maybe free coding classes or free programming classes for young people, especially in underserved areas. And many of these um don't many of these initiatives don't take a lot to start. So we find that people are giving back in any way they can. What tech companies have to do is to realize how far their um, their own skills and resources have sent them. They also have to realize that they rely on the rest of the population to make profits. And so they also need to bring the rest of the population up to speed, whatever it is, whatever skills that the population needs to catch up. 
the private um, sector also has a responsibility to prepare young people for jobs and to mentor them in such a way that they are able to fit directly into the new industry that are coming up. So I think that private sector just has to give back in any way. It doesn't have to be any, it doesn't have to be large scale. It can be with whatever resources are available. Thank you. Thank you, Deborah. Uh, so there's another question um, and let us we'll address this uh, to Dr. Desai, although uh, Dr. Desai, you've already touched on this a little bit. Um, so the question is, in your experience, how can government and development agents leverage the talent of young African leaders, but at the same time avoid an elite bias and engage in meaningful meaningful ways um, also other unders, with other um, underdeserved groups? Indeed, we need to invest a lot more in education. We need to ensure that um, ICTs prevail throughout the entire educational system. It's a tool, it's um, a technology that promote greater productivity and efficiency and innovation in its, in its um, application. The um, central thing here is to ensure that we're able to find ways in which we promote innovative approaches the ability for us to, in particular, look into these various um, special traits that youth have and from any situation, whether it's endowed or less endowed, those traits of curiosity, creativity and resourcefulness have to always be nurtured and uh, have to be uh, applied to promote the greatest uh, empowerment and appreciation of these very essential talents and governments and um, and development partners can play a role they can play a role in promoting activities outside the education value chain like for example supporting science at a very young age to to encourage young people to appreciate science by way of uh, exhibitions mentorships simulations and all the other areas that can provide imagination for a young person who is um, in the remotest part of a village in Africa to imagine a pathway to opportunity. And uh, this needs to be created. And um, this is their role to create that ecosystem to ensure that access is, is available, that um, equity is there, and all the structures and uh, opportunities that exist. That, you know, the world of work also has that ability to appreciate that on one hand, of course, they rely on productivity, innovation, and efficiency for their profits, their sustainability, their transformation, but they need to invest. They need to invest in that foundation because after all, they're at the frontier and they need to create that link on the frontier of their challenges to the opportunity of solutions which are there in the youth. And so their role in creating links and ensuring that they're involved becomes absolutely critical and uh, move more from a CSR perspective to a perspective of responsibility, of collective responsibility. And I think only then will we create that nexus, that link between uh, you know, the the world of work, the opportunity, and youth. Thank you, Dr. Desai. Um, 
So there's a question from Linda um, in the audience, um, and we'll address this uh, to Melanie. So she asks, given that approximately 70% of Africans are offline, how do we strive to ensure that no one is left behind in the evolution of digital life and work, particularly in remote work, and uh, particularly given that access to internet is costly? I think that that's a great question, and there is a really good point about um, costs, which is a huge issue. Um, for example, how how can we accept that how we want to access to Access to the internet. Um, oh, can you hear me right? It's, it's coming up. Is that any better? Yeah, that's better. Um, so I think there's a need to create a, an environment to increase market competition for, for different telecoms to lower um, the price of data and, and also to to offer different packages. Um, so one thing that came out of the consultation was that um, in, in some Saharan African countries, um, the packages were only daily or weekly or monthly, but there needs to be a bit more diversity in terms of this. And um, in the context of COVID, exposure to new products um, to those who are originally couldn't afford um, data could potentially in the future boost its demand. So um, making um, some, some in areas um, like Ghana, I think, um, there was uh, better access to internet with free internet access in uh, specific uh, platforms. So this is quite important in terms of accessibility and cost, but we also need to think about the, the, the digital divide impact on mental health um, and, and the social fabric generally. Um, one comment from the consultation I can remember was that um, when data was cheaper or, or free at night, for example, then young people were more inclined to browse the internet overnight, which is not ideal in terms of um, only people being having access um, at night. Um, but also explain to young people uh, and, and the population generally how to manage and, and use data bundles so that it doesn't you know, become an issue um, in terms of financial access. So yeah. Short answer is um, internet needs to be uh, accessible to, to more people. Otherwise, there's not going to be um, you know, a better progress in terms of digital skills or access to, to work. Thank you, Melanie. Uh, so there's a question from, for Deborah from the audience. Um, Deborah, what is your top tip for young women who want to start a business or a startup or a social enterprise? I think that we cannot downplay the role of mentorship for young women that want to start something, whether it is a business or a social enterprise. Mentorship or um, social circles are very important because we have many young women now who are trying to penetrate into areas that were traditionally for men, that are going to need um, hands to guide them, are going to need shoulders to step on, are going to need people to tell them how to demand what is rightfully theirs, how to be more confident, going to need people to tell them that they are welcome in the spaces they find themselves in. So I think one of the things that young women should look out for is finding 
older women who can mentor them, who can guide them, who can give them access to the right networks and advice that they would need. And I think that would be very helpful. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Deborah. Um, so, even though this question was uh, to Deborah, um, maybe let's ask the same question to Jabul. And you know, we'd like to hear what top tip uh, would you have for young aspiring entrepreneurs or social enterprises? Uh, sorry, Jabul, can you hear me? Uh, so the question is for you. Um, what tip do, do you have for young aspiring entrepreneurs or social entrepreneurs? Oh, I think uh, we've lost uh, Jabulo. Um, not a problem. Um, so maybe we could move um, to possibly hearing some closing remarks uh, from our esteemed panelists. And I'd like to thank you again, you know, the audience for, for tuning in um, and our speakers for sharing these collective questions and, and insights. Um, so we could start with uh, Deborah and then move to Dr. Desai and then Melanie. And then when Jabula comes in, uh, we can hear um, some closing thoughts and remarks. Deborah, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I'd like to say that in closing, we've seen that young people across Africa have both the energy, the talent, and the desire to solve our own problems. We've seen that it's going to take um, collaboration on the part of young people themselves, on the part of governments, on the part of the private enterprise to help us all get to the point where we are ready to take on the to take on the jobs, ready to define our future ready to create our own future i think that young people especially also have to see themselves as as i said earlier agents of their own development and be willing to put in the work that it takes for us to be ready for whatever the future is going to bring to us thank you so much and it's been nice listening to all your perspectives and insights today thank you uh Jabulo. Um, Jibulu, could you uh, give your final uh, thoughts or remarks? Or maybe Dr. Desai, while we try and get to the connection back. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you all. Indeed, it's been inspiring to be with you, to be part of this conversation on education skills and work and uh, I would probably say this that indeed uh, these are very difficult times but there's also an opportunity to do something about the challenges and indeed we need to see to it that we work together. It reminds me of an old African saying it takes a village to bring up a child. Maybe we can add that you know it takes uh, continents to develop an ecosystem joint responsibility. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, Melanie. Can you hear me all right? Is that any better? 
Yeah. Um, I think um, I'll, I'll close down with um, one quote from uh, one participant of the consultation back in July, which was that not everyone still understands what technology can do for them. And I think that's quite important in, in the sense that um, it can do a lot of things. And it is quite a shame that we don't provide these opportunities to um, everyone at this stage and they don't see what technology can do for them, um, particularly in the sense that it can facilitate communication of, of different opportunities and ideas and, and how information can be used to improve um, young people's lives and livelihoods that are not just realistic um, and within the reach of, of, of their aspirations, but that, you know, works with what they they, they can do um, generally. And, and this should be something that is um, in everyone's reach. So very much, um, very much hoping that internet will be accessible to everyone to be able to benefit from what it can bring to them. Thank you, Melanie. I think we're just getting uh, Jabula back online. So um, I think let's just give him like a few seconds. Hi, Jabula, can you hear me? I can hear you. I can hear you, Sayeda. Can you okay. hear me? Uh, great. Yes, I can hear you. Uh, so before we lost connection, there was a follow-up uh, question uh, from the audience that was asking if you had any top tips for you know young social entrepreneurs. Um, so maybe you could start with that and then uh, give us uh, your closing thoughts or remarks. All right. Um, I would say that um, as a as a young entrepreneur, I did something that comes from my heart. I did something that I love, something that I had passion for. Don't do anything that you copied from a friend or that you copied from your neighbor, or maybe you saw an opportunity of, of maybe more cash in that. So do what you love. Do what you have passion for. That's my tip. Go for what you love. Go for what, what makes you smile every morning, every day. Then you will do better in entrepreneurship. And then my remarks would, um, um, uh, sorry about that. My remarks would be, um, thank you very much for this platform. I learned a lot um, from Dr. Kevet. And thank you, um, Sayeda, Deborah, and Melanie. Thank you very much. I had, um, I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot today. Thank you very much for having us this platform. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Jabulo. And thank you to all the panelists um, for your closing remarks um, and for sharing your insights today. Uh, so I'd like to close, you know, possibly as a, you know, take chair privilege, uh, you know, just a few uh, insights um, of my own um, to close. So you know, we hope obviously that um, the discussion today has contributed to emphasizing, you know, many challenges uh, that young people face when it comes to um, accessing um, digital, um, you know, digital platforms that develop their skills and not only their life, but also um, in education, in formal education systems, um, but also highlighting many ideas and examples in working towards a Future where you are better prepared for life and for work. So thank you very much, um, Deborah and uh, Jabulo, for being here. It's been inspiring for me as well. Um, and we also, you know, we look to 
to towards have a future where um where we can have equitable access to quality learning platforms and opportunities. And I'd like to end with something that uh, Dr. Desai said, uh, which really stood out for me, is that education is about co-creation and not about supply and demand. And this conversation here today has been one that has, that's intergenerational. Um, so I think that's very special. And you know that, that quote um, is very powerful. Uh, so I'd like to share with you, so remember there was a poll uh, that was conducted earlier, which was what skills should be prioritized for youth to be better prepared for life and work in the next decade? And the poll results are in. Um, and 75% uh, prioritize digital literacy and ICT skills, while 56% prioritize soft skills. Uh, this is people's social and communication skills. And 19% prioritize organizational and analytical skills. Um, so based on, you know, the insights shared by our panelists and audience members, uh, it is clear that African youth from the north of Africa to the south of Africa, but also uh, African diaspora youth should be in spaces and platforms for their voices to be heard and acted upon alongside stakeholders. And these spaces must be equitable and inclusive in terms of their design and access, and they must be everywhere across all sectors. Thank you to everyone uh, that joined the conversation today and to everyone that was watching. It was a great pleasure to be a part of this conversation and to be in conversation with all the panelists and I wish you all the best. Kwaherini. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Thank you.